Welcome to the Cinephiliac Lounge. I'm Scott Kilroy. And I'm Pat O'Connell. And we're two guys who like to talk about movies over a couple of drinks. Today we're talking about the movie Arrival. There are days that define your story beyond your life. Like the day they arrived. I'm Colonel G.T. Webber from Army Intelligence. Pack your bags. You're at the top of everyone's list when it comes to translations. Priority one. What do they want? Where are they from? You'll be reporting to me, but you'll be working with him when you're in the show. That's what they call him, the UFO. Pat, could you give us a brief breakdown of the film? Absolutely. Warning everyone, as usual, spoilers ahead. Arrival, written by Eric Heisser and directed by Denis Villeneuve, based on the science fiction novella Story of Your Life by American writer Ted Chiang, starring Amy Adams, Jeremy Renner, Forrest Whitaker, Michael Stuhlbarg, and Z Ma. After 12 mysterious alien spacecrafts appear around the globe, an elite U.S. team is put together by Army Intelligence Colonel G.T. Weber, played by Forrest Whitaker, to address the extraterrestrial presence. Led by the nation's top linguist and translator, Dr. Louise Brooks, played by Amy Adams, and paired along with a theoretical physicist, Dr. Ian Donnelly, played by Jeremy Renner, they are tasked with learning how to communicate with the seven-legged aliens they call heptapods, in race against time to discover why they have arrived on Earth and what their true purpose is, before tensions lead to war between competing and fearful governments. The film also has a moving framing device at the beginning and end and is peppered with clues throughout about a personal mystery involving Dr. Brooks and her child that is vital to the entire narrative. So before we get into the movie, Scott, what are you drinking tonight? I'm drinking Green Spot, which I think I mentioned on the Thelma and Louise podcast, yes. but didn't go into a review and I thought this was a good time to do it. So let me take a sip. I'll tell you what I think. The nose, it's, oh, I should mention, it is triple distilled Irish whiskey. Ooh. 80 proof. Like it already. And it's very subtle. Not not what I'm used to drinking. I'm used to bourbons, which are very bold and in your face. And this, I have to really concentrate to get any flavors from. I get some apple and some really strong copper taste Ooh. in the in the nose. Hmm. Get a little bit of oak with the taste and the finish, and a lot more apple and some honey. It's got a really strong honey base. So it's overall really good. I'd highly recommend it. What are you drinking? Well, funny that you should bring up Thelma Louise. I think it was in Thelma Louise where we talked about how I've never tried rye. So I went ahead and I got me a bottle of rye. I chose for this, my first tasting of rye, I chose Bullet Rye, Frontier Whiskey, Bullet 95 Rye. I read up uh, a little bit on this. Apparently, in order to be categorized as rye, you have to be at least 51% rye. And then you can mix, you know, with the sour mash, whatever. Uh, this one is 95% rye. So I figured uh, if I'm going to do it, let me jump into the deep end of the pool. So here we go. Go with the nose. This is... Can already tell. Normally, you get that sweetness or whatever. You don't get that at all. I'm trying to. It's very subtle. Maybe. Very faint. Maybe. Maybe a little bit like soft mint or anything. I'm not sure, but 
All right, I'm going to take a swallow. Okay, wow. Yeah, not not sweet at all. Maybe a little... Hmm. It's almost like an alcoholic green tea. <laughs> I mean, I like it. It's got hints of some other stuff. Maybe a little bit orangey in the finish. It's weird. It's kind of it's kind of got like a peppery spice to it. It hits you, and then it's very dry, and then the flavor just drops quickly. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Huh. It's been a while since I've tried to since I've had an old fashioned, but with regular bourbon or whiskey that that's already sweet and then with an old-fashioned you got to put sugar and what was it angostura bitters i think yeah i think it'd be really i think you know what i'm gonna try i need to get angostura bitters but i'm gonna try an old-fashioned with this i think this might be really good for that cocktail wow that sounds great okay what were you drinking during the movie during the movie was weird because i love a summer drink when it's hot i tend to start craving a gin and tonic. So I had a gin and tonic for one viewing. And then the one thing you see them drink in the film is wine. So uh, one of the other viewings I had one, it wasn't good or expensive wine by any means. I just, just cheap old Merlot, but, but I had wine. <laughs> okay. What about you? I finished off the 1792 bourbon that I had that I did a review on one of the other podcasts. Oh, cool. So that's gone. Uh-huh. <laughs> Another put to rest. So do you want to jump into the movie? Sure, let's do it. I was going to say, ask you where you saw this movie for the first time. This movie, I again, I do not see movies in theaters lately. I heard about this movie. A couple of friends recommended it. I'm a huge Amy Adams fan. I think she's one of the best actresses of her time. I really feel that way. I think everything she's been in has just been phenomenal. And Forrest Whitaker, as you may or may not know, I consider a national treasure. <laughs> so so this movie was kind of a no-brainer for me. I rented it in early 2017, and just Virginia and I both really liked it. We watched it together and just had a great time. And then when we watched it, when I rewatched it for the podcast, I had the kids watch it with me. And I have some interesting insight from that for my son, Aspen, is a linguist major. And he had some interesting insights to the movie that I'll get into later. Oh, wow. Very cool. I didn't know that. I did not know that. That's awesome. Okay. How about you? The same for me. It was something back when I used to still get physical. I was probably one of the last holdouts to stop getting physical copies from Netflix. But but I got a I got a Blu-ray from Netflix as well. I didn't see this one on the big screen, unfortunately. I wish I had, but I didn't. It didn't seem at the time like a movie I had to see in the theater. But then when I saw it, I was like, "Oh man, this would have looked great." Yeah, I didn't I didn't realize I hadn't watched Denis Villeneuve's previous films. If I had watched his previous films at that point, at that point I didn't. Now I've seen Sicario. I still haven't seen Prisoners. But if I had seen Sicario, I definitely it would have ramped up my desire to watch it. But I wasn't I wasn't there yet, so unfortunately, um, so maybe maybe sometime down the road there'll be uh, it'll be at film form or rep, you know some repertory house and we could catch on the big screen. Yeah, that would be great. By the way, one thing j- not to jump around, but the big ch- I don't know if you know this the big chamber that they meet the aliens in that's a real set. Oh, that's see it shows that when you do it the old fashioned you feel it like you really yeah. feel, it makes a difference. It makes a real difference. That's awesome. 
Yeah, isn't it? It's it's uh yeah, I mean that big room, the whole hallway, he they built a huge set in Montreal and uh that was one of Villeneuve's demands to make the movie was that that had to be real. I like the way he works. That's awesome. That's really great. That set, that antechamber set where they go to actually have their scenes of first contact with the aliens, the heptapods. It's really impressive. It's really, it's stark. It's very primal. It's tied to some of the, some themes and symbols that I like to talk about a little further on, but that's, that's fantastic. I didn't know about that. I was actually surprised to find out the movie actually did pretty well in the box office. Cause this seemed like a movie that quite frankly, is a little too smart for a lot of people. Oh, definitely. So I was really surprised that it did well in the box office. So was I. I mean, I wanted to, besides talking about how fantastic the, the cast is, and I agree with your assessments of Amy Adams uh, and Forrest Whitaker, everyone's great. In looking at stuff, Kenneth Turan and his review in the LA Times, he said something that he summed up Amy Adams' accomplishment in this film, particularly that I thought summed it up for me perfectly. He wrote, in his success Villeneuve is helped considerably by the finely calibrated performance of star Amy Adams. Though the credit lists her as one of the group of top actors, including Jeremy Renner, Forrest Whitaker, and Michael Stolberg, Arrival is really Adams' film, a showcase of her ability to quietly and effectively melt intelligence, empathy, and reserve, which I thought was spot on. The movie is it's astounding because it is very powerful, but it is a very quiet film for the most part. Yeah. Yeah, you're totally right. Yeah, and she does give just a knockout performance. I mean, the whole movie is about her character, Louise. I mean, it's it's obvious, you know, and it's kind of interesting seeing some of the behind-the-scenes footage and some of the interviews, and Jeremy Rayner knew when he came aboard that he was going to be second fiddle, and he was okay with that because he really liked the script. When you watch the, the film, there's plenty of stuff for him to do, but it's obvious he's brought on board as the mathematician and, and the physics guy. And you don't really go into that. And I read one of the articles that there was stuff shot because I also, not to jump ahead of myself, I also finally read the actual source novel because I'd been meaning to ever since I watched this film because I was so impressed by it. And there is more about what Donnelly's job and what he accomplishes with math and physics in the source novel. But that dropped away. Because they really wanted to make it the focus on least, which completely makes sense for the point for this film. Yeah. I just love the fact that when they introduce the aliens, you see there's this great shot of Louise looking at a TV screen and her students are behind her. It's just framed perfectly. It, you know, the few students that showed up for class and you don't even see the aliens. You just see their reaction of just shock and like awe. This movie both respects and feeds into the tropes of sci- this genre of science fiction, as well as doing things that really are breakthroughs and different from other science fiction films. And one of those things is sort of the slow reveal. Most good science fiction films that involve an alien or an other or a monster, so it's to, to, for, to, to cut to the chase it usually is handled like a strip tease. You don't want to, you don't want to show it all off at once. So, so yeah, I, I noticed that too. He's very cleverly through the news footage or whatever. There's just slight glimpses, but he saves the real reveal for one, for the ship and for the aliens. And then the ultra reveal of what the entire alien looks like for further into the film. Which is which is a trope of a good science fiction 
film. That's um, that's what's normally done. Adds to the excitement. Most science fiction films, of course, are when you see a science fiction film, you expect special effects. You expect crazy design, otherworldly things to specularize, to use a ten cent film studies word, to specularize the, <laughs> the creatures and and the the technology and the ships. And that's all done here. And and also, science fiction films tend to the good ones. They're a reflection, or they they comment on current social issues or the human condition, and this does so, but to a level that some others don't attain. I feel like this film is actually, this film is like the baby of 2001 and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah, I could totally see that. One of the things that struck me with it when they finally do reveal the aliens is they're truly alien. There's, from everything from the way they... They hold themselves to the actual beings. There's very, there's not much that you could look at them and go, oh, that's kind of human-like. I mean, they're very, very different. And I, I think that's something that impressed me because it's hard to like all, you've got hundreds, of, you know, a hundred years of science fiction movies being made where probably 80% of them are a guy in a rubber mask. And right. <laughs> to, to actually do something where this is actually shocking. These guys, these aliens don't look anything like us. Yes, that that's the one that's the one saving grace of CGI when it's used, in my opinion, properly, very sparingly. The design of you know H.R. Geiger's design for the alien is fantastic and with it's scary and nightmarish and psychosexual and just many different things. But it was a it had to be a man in a rubber suit. That kind of limits what you can do when you have CGI. You can do you can you can have a being that is that looks absolutely believable, that is nothing like a humanoid, just like this in this film. You know, you touched upon, I want to go, to go back to just how cerebral this movie, I mean, this movie, this film is jam-packed with a myriad of incredibly weighty metaphysical questions and meaning. It is complex and a dense mixture of multi-layered allegories and themes. It, I think it's the most cerebral film we've probably tackled so far. Oh, and, easily. Yeah, and yet it packs such an emotional wallop and like right out of the fucking gate. And then throughout the entire film, I mean, you've got to keep a Kleenex close to you when you watch this one. Yeah. I mean, in some of the later scenes, when you finally figure out what's really going on and that in a way it's, it is this big epic movie about, you know, aliens coming to earth, but in another way, it's actually a really small story about something that's really heartbreaking. Absolutely. It's both. It's both a, a world-shaking event and important for the world and humanity and the safety and advancement of humanity, but it's also a very, very personal journey. Yeah, and not to jump around too much, but I it's just because we're on this topic already, the point later in the film where the little girl says to her mother, why, you know, why does daddy look at me differently now? And I was just like, oh my God, like I feel like my guts have been ripped out of me. That's... Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like I said, this this happens to me a number of times. And also, it's weird, and I guess it kind of goes with the film in a bizarre sense. But I've watched this movie several times, and each time I watch it, the very beginning montage has more and more of an impact on me. Because I understand it out of the gate. I understand the actual importance of what's happening and where we're at. And so every time I watch it, 
it it, ha- it carries more weight and it, and it affects me more. It's in the, and that opening montage is just brilliant screenwriting. It's there's such economy, such mastery with with a few carefully chosen words and images. We get a full picture in our minds of a loving relationship and a loss. Yeah, and it totally tricks you because you think you know the bit first beginning of the movie. You think okay, there's something going on. There's you know we obviously know there are aliens coming. The movie's called Arrival. But this woman's obviously crushed because of what just happened to her of losing her child, and it's not that at all. No. You know, it takes it. That, that that's part of the mastery. I mean, part of the the brilliance of this particular film and the storytelling, the way that it's told, is what makes it so powerful. This is a picture that touches upon many of the same profound themes and the preoccupations explored in Kubrick's masterpiece, as I said, two thousand and one. And then it infuses it with the optimism and the childlike delight at discovery that makes the Spielberg's Close Encounters so accessible and inviting. And the film definitely has distinct homages to both. When they bring the parakeet in the cage into the antechamber, now it makes sense for the scene, but I totally was like, oh man, that makes me think of what, you know, the parakeets in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And there's a couple of shots where, like, when Louise is in bed sleeping and you see a light come from the sky in the distance and comes at so lights from the sky in Close Encounters uses it. But then as it gets closer, you understand it's just a helicopter. And especially when she opens the the door, when Weber comes to, to, to the house and she opens the door, it kind of reminded me of Close Encounters, the flood of light. And also the point of Close Encounters, the end of the film is about it's done differently, where it's music instead of logograms, but it's about communication. In 2001, there's a shot of the the heptapod ship that is framed just like one of the shots in 2001 of the monolith, where you're at the ground level looking up at the object in dead center in the sky behind it. And also the fact that in 2001, you have an extraterrestrial force that is responsible for the advancement or the next step of man's evolution. But in 2001, the aliens are never seen, and that gives that film a different kind of power and resonance. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, I definitely got the uh, the the Close Encounters camages of the light and the opening of the door. I totally got that as well. It just it just so brings harkens back to that. Yeah, but both those films, especially 2001, this film is so difficult because it's like, as I said, it's weighty and it focuses on questions about the nature of free will through its rumination and its obsession with our human perception of the laws and t- of time and reveals that it's actually a very human limitation to only view it as a sequential line of causality when it can also be experienced in a completely nonlinear fashion like heptapods do all at once. And if you can see the future, does it mean it can or cannot be changed? Or does the experience of knowing the future actually change the person and give them a sense of obligation to act like according to what they've seen the thing is the structure of the film is everything story plot content and form they're in perfect sync and unison to start at the end and make the audience think it's the past is a total mindfuck the non-chronological narrative of the storytelling mirrors the ultimate non-chronological mindset slash reality of, of our protagonist, Louise Banks. The structure reinforces the plot and narrative. If it were told differently and not this puzzle within a puzzle mystery 
what the heptapods want and what is happening or what will happen with Louise and her daughter, if it did not unfold the way it does, it would not have the same impact. It has a very complicated structure with present and future intermingling and breaking into each other at any given moment. It, it, it only gradually becomes clear to us that the scenes with Hannah and of the family in Louise's home take place after the events with the heptapods instead of before. The narrative strategy corresponds to the transformation that Louise experiences in the film. Yeah, I, t- I totally agree. And it's, I mean, it's it's just brilliant screenwriting uh, on on the most basic level. Like I said, I think I said this before, but you go into this thinking it's about one thing and it's about another. And I, I've been talking to people about this movie since I saw it. And I've been trying to get people to watch it. And a lot of people just kind of look at me bewildered because I'm like, you don't understand. You think it's a normal science fiction movie to a certain extent. <laughs> yeah. And it's not. And it's so much more. And it's much deeper than than what you think you, you're getting involved with. It's one thing when you have a film that relies heavily on flashbacks. But the fact that Arrival is, I, I looked this up, this is not off the top of my head, but another 10 cent word, using flash forwards also known as a prolepsis when you see the a future event it keeps using flash forwards but it's done in a way where we're thinking it's flashbacks they're disguised as flashbacks and so it's done so fucking well i mean he he deserved the nomination we're also getting ahead of ourselves on but this script is fucking brilliant yeah and i love the script i love the fact that they put so much emphasis on this is one person's story in it. When I was watching it, I this the third time I watched it, I realized there's very few shots of anyone else's point of view. There's a lot of shots of Louise's close-ups and yeah. then cutting to something going on. There's very there's a couple of times where Forrest Whitaker's character has one of those moments, and I believe Jeremy Rayner's has one of those moments. But they're rare. For the most part, this is 100% Louise's story. To your point, it's cinematic techniques besides the brilliant screenplay. They really, everyone's at on top of their game in this fucking movie. And so many, there are other cinematic techniques that are also very integral and very important to the success of the film on every level. The other techniques used in the film all help to create, enhance, and sustain this the underlying meanings that the screenplay, the narrative expertly uh, relays. Uh, Joe Walker, the editor, his editing is integral to the film in two very important ways. He uses shots like jump cuts, weird iron line matches to often to amplify the sense of temporal and spatial displacements and and replicate disorientation felt by most, by, by everyone, like when they enter the chamber, but especially by Louise as the film progresses is when Ian Donnelly is talking to her about the, the hypothesis, the, is it Sapper? Sapper Wharf. Sapper Wharf. Yeah. And and what was that? Sapper Wharf hypothesis was what again? It's like, it's the theory that language doesn't just give people a way to express their thoughts. It influences and determines those thoughts. Right. And, and when he's saying that to her, she's kind of like, he's like checking on it because she seems like she's fucked up because she's she's having these visions, which you learn are these flash forward. But then there's a scene that I was like, whoa, where you see Ian Donnelly is talking to her and she's in the background in a certain angle. And then 
she's fucked up and then turns and he's like he's just like adjusted slightly like weird jump cuts just to make it to really throw you off and he does that a lot and like i said in the alien environment between special effects and editing it helps give the sense that the the ship is defying the the laws of physics so the dialogue of course and the film language of editing is the way it provides us with the clues for this to help us solve this riddle by providing perfectly timed match cuts at crucial moments he often you'll often see like something happy like oh i'm embracing someone because i'm happy and then match cuts to a different point in time you think is the past but it's really the forward of the same two people but now someone's dying or sick so the juxtaposition used with match cuts to jump through time to give and to guide us and louise the protagonist so it helps us all arrive at the movie's final crazy fucked up amazing revelation ending together the film teaches the audience and steps just like louise in, you know teaches the heptapods or learns from the heptapods by giving us visual signifiers so that it ultimately unravels the mystery of louise and her child yeah absolutely and one of the other things i was i wanted to mention speaking of you know speaking of the editing and everything the cinematographer bradford young just does an amazing job on this oh yeah it's just the lighting and just the way not everybody looks pretty at every every moment in this movie and that's intentional i mean there because i love the fact that when they go into the alien ship Right after that, they all look screwed up. They they all look pasty and not well. Yeah, definitely. It's what I what we love about the films, the sci-fi films that are not scared to play with cinematography, like Blade Runner, like Alien. You know what I mean? Like where things right. can be dark. They're not afraid to for things to be dark, and like you said, to look gritty and to use lighting to show how fucked up emotionally and physically someone is at a moment. And enhance it. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, also with the cinematography is very important with what I think is a, somewhat of a theme of this film. As I said, it's a personal journey for Louise. This movie deals with a lot of things, life and death. And, and in a lot of ways, the cinematography is speaking to that. And you have a lot of const- the movie is constantly going from scenes very, uh, very dark and it's very con- and then it's very you go to a scene as outside is very bright and beautiful so it's it's like the contrast between light and dark life and death no absolutely one thing i wanted to mention was bradford young the cinematographer he mentioned that he looked at the book speedway by photographer martina hoglin i might be Ooh. mispronouncing that as a reference for the look of the film and i'll put that in the show notes um, oh, she has a website awesome. very cool stuff Oh, awesome. I didn't know about that. I'm excited. I can't wait. Yeah, get that up there. Yeah, it's very cool stuff. It's very much about the empty space. And, it, you know, she's taking photographs of, of race car drivers. And there's very little personality to them. <laughs> it's really interesting. So take a look at that. That's definitely worth your time. That's awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I, I have, as I said, I have notes about some things to talk further on down and it gets, goes back to how it's tied to the cinematography in this film. Definitely. Do you want to take, take a second to talk about, I'm thinking much like the film, I'm thinking in a heptapod B kind of way, because I'm being a little non-linear right now. <laughs> I want to talk about special call outs or weird or not so weird observations we might've gotten from watching the film separate of the narrative. So 
watching this film, I thought it, it occurred to me, it's like, this is a film about the importance and transformative power of language that it's very interesting that in order to essentially trick us into believing at first that the opening montage is in the past, the screenwriter had to be very specific in his word choices and fixated on how he used language to achieve that goal. The form, again, form and content complement one another perfectly. He, for instance, he uses past tense for future events. In the opening voiceover, Louis says, and this was the end for a shot of dying, her dying daughter, Hannah, when in fact, these events haven't happened yet. And she hasn't even met her father yet, for fuck's sake. But between the images and specifically choosing the tense, it language and since it's a major point of the film language and the power of language and how language is used i found that fascinating that he had to use language in that way in order to do a film about the importance of language <laughs> yeah that's a good point i didn't think about that i would love to see the script of this yeah the script is fucking tight there are callbacks i mean it is it is a the script is like a fucking pyramid it's built so well one other thing that came to mind is this film it has a plot Again, again, about the importance of communication, right? There are two plots of the film, right? They want to know why the aliens are there and what they want. And that's one goal, one thing that's going on. Then there's the Louise mystery of what's going on, what happened with her kid and her, and, and her personal story. And then there's this whole other geopolitical plot of the different nations, of the 12 locations that the ships have been at the at, we're talking to everyone's talking to one until at some point they don't and then it seems like one of the nations china it decides that they want the aliens to fucking get out of dodge they don't trust them they're going to start a war and they stop talking in any case so that's a whole other plot but so the importance of communication because louise gets it's this power of the heptapod by learning the heptapod b language can think in a non-linear fashion she prevents she she prevents a war and unites the world by communicating with, with the General Chang from China the words of his dying wife. But it's also very it's very interesting because co that communication is also the very thing that adds, or lack of, I should say, that adds to the personal tragedy that Louise ultimately experiences because she loses her husband on top of losing her daughter to an illness because she communicated. Right. Because she communicated awareness of the appending death to Ian, her husband. And since he obviously was not as profoundly transformed as Louise by the, as you said, the Sapper Wharf, I think, right? Sapper Wharf hypothesis. Yep. He was not affected like Louise was. He didn't get the, the, the power, the gift. And he, he doesn't experience, he doesn't, he doesn't understand. And he, and he felt a sense of betrayal, obviously, because he doesn't, he doesn't think like a heptopod like Louise does. He doesn't see all of his entire timeline like she does. So it's just, it's very, it's, it's, it's very interesting to me, and it, it's funny. She can, not to make light, but it's almost like no good deed goes unpunished. She saves the world <laughs> and works <laughs> to unite the entire planet, and her kid dies, and she loses her husband because she communicated. Yeah, and and it's, you know, it's, it's said in such a profound way because... Like you're right. If she if she never told him, he would have just been oblivious and just got along with whatever had happened. So one of the things I wanted to mention that I thought was really interesting was this one. They had eight Academy Award nominations: Best Picture, Best Director, Best Cinematography, Best Adapted Screenplay. All of which I I don't know what won that year, but I'm a fan. I kind of feel like that should won. Arrival should have won. But one of the things they did win for was Best Sound Editing. 
and the sound editing, the sound effects and the music and everything are just off the hook in this movie. Oh, absolutely. Talk about science fiction movies needing to put you in another world and, you know, created this immersive experience. The sound on this is just phenomenal. The way the hexapods talk to just the noise when they come into the the chamber, it's just mind-blowing. I, I just think it was really well done. It reminded me watching it uh, when I fell in love with Blade Runner. I noticed one of the things was how how the sound and the soundtrack worked in unison. And that also is the case here because the sound, again, like portions of Blade Runner, it's not traditional. It's it's very atmospheric. You know, it's not, not trying to totally tell you how to feel, essentially. It's creating a mood. And that goes with the fantastic sound editing and sound effects. As you said, it's that weird mixture of whale song and industrial noises. It works very much to make it, make it feel like, oh, this is a truly alien being and a truly alien extraterrestrial space yeah you're totally off your center here you there's no reference and it's it just works so well yeah absolutely couldn't agree more so everybody in terms of in terms of cinematic technique everyone's working at top level thousand and one percent along with direction and the acting so good so good the, the staple of a good science fiction film is do you believe it right Right. Do you believe the alien? Do you believe is it is it hokey and bullshit or are you like holy shit? And this movie is definitely in the holy shit category. <laughs> totally. Very awe inspiring. The design, tone, everything. Great. So one of the things that I did want to bring up, not to disparage the film at all, but I did read a few interviews with, and I'll put this all in the show notes with linguists and their perception of the movie. Oh, okay. And for the most part, they liked it. Most of the linguists liked it. They felt that one of them, one of the linguists said they totally glossed over some aspects of, of learning a new language. But then again, the woman said they glossed over some of the things that I would have thought would have been important. But then again, it would have been a six hour movie. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that's fair. One of the criticisms that I thought was hilarious was someone said, there's no way a linguist professor would have an, a, a house that beautiful on a lake. <laughs> that is really funny because every time I watch this movie, I'm like, damn, she's got a fucking sweet setup for a single <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> really? Where the hell did that come from? I, I want the job where I go to work and there's eight kids and I say a couple of things about fucking ancient Sumerian text, cuneiform, and Portuguese, the origins of Portuguese, and I go home to this fucking <laughs> billion-dollar home on the water. <laughs> yeah, not bad. That's fucking hilarious. One of the things that Aspen brought up that I thought was interesting is the Saphir Wharf hypothesis is kind of looked down upon in, in linguist circles. So I thought wow. that was kind of interesting. So, so was he annoyed by it or just made it an, the observation? Or was he also like, yeah, that's bullshit? <laughs> no, no, just made the observation. Just said, I guess there's some controversy as far as the two writers of, who came up with it. Saphir died before anything was published. And wow. there's feelings that Worf overstated some stuff but anyway the main gist of it is that a lot of linguists don't think that it rewires your brain of you know learning a new language 
Of course, if you believe this, then you don't have a movie. So <laughs> <laughs> that's that is fucking great. Yeah, the fact that they do acknowledge that there is a, such a thing as an artistic license and that it helps the movie, but I think it's fucking fascinating that that actual language. Like, yeah, that's kind of bullshit. <laughs> yeah, and and the fact was they were all like, no, the the movie was good. Um, you know, we liked it, but you know that aspect of it just didn't. Hold up. Wow. That is that is a fucking great call out observation about this movie. And the other funny thing I noticed was Saphir Wharf hypothesis isn't brought up by Louise. It's brought up by Ian. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, and it, it is kind of brought up in that whole where she does the kangaroo speech where kangaroo means i don't understand which isn't true so it kind of they kind of do acknowledge in a on a level that what they're saying isn't isn't the reality that's that's awesome yeah i I think it's it it is he definitely i mean he definitely brings up the the sapir wharf thank you for teaching me how to pronounce that (laughs) sapir wharf Saphir Wharf. Well, you or thank you, thank you, Aspen, for teaching us how to say it <laughs> properly. I should say, yeah, that's great. That's great. <laughs> I love that. The only thing I, I I could add to that in terms of see, that that's that's not a weird observation. That's like a real life awesome observation. The other call out or thing I, I got from this separate of of our analysis of the film is the film is essentially it's structured like a, a love letter as is the original source novel from a mother to her daughter and that's great but watching it this time for this podcast i noticed yet yeah, we never see louise's mother and when she speaks to her on the phone she seems completely like she reverts to being a teenager and it's completely fucking mortified by her parent Right. And exasperated by her. She's like, I don't know, Mom. I'm watching the same things you are. Mom, please don't bother with that channel. I told you they're idiots. Like, I, I, I that made me chuckle this time watching it because the lofty ideals and her daughter, but yet you see the relationship in a very, I mean, it does, to be fair, it makes sense. He is using that scene as another way of convincing or tricking us into thinking that she has already gone through. Right. A traumatic experience because she's like, I'm fine, mom. I'm fine. So there is a reason for it. But I just I, I had that thought watching it this time that I thought that was that was kind of funny. And watching the film. Also, one last thing, the, the, watching this film this time, I realized this movie is also an ex- exploration of the nature of memory, much like our very first podcast film, 12 Monkeys, except here the film transforms it memories are also in this film are predictions and in this film they're they are an inversion of time travel because louise can travel through her past present and future constantly now in her own mind she can travel her own timeline so it's like time travel yeah it is very similar to a lot of the ideas of 12 monkeys and it also you know it also brings up the whole fact of i guess the thing that i kept coming away from this movie every every time when it ends i would think what would i do in this situation would i have a child knowing the child's going to die young and it's going to be heartbreaking for and horrible for the child. Am I still? Would I still go through with it? Right. Louise states that premise very succinctly. I mean, the movie asks questions around this, but when Louise states, "If you could see your life from start to finish, would you change things?" And that's 
that's a very profound question. And, and it really, I, I don't know what what I would do. But there's something about this film that is confusing and, and they're not, not confusing, but this movie is so fucking jam-packed with lots of meaning and symbolism and themes and motifs. And it also, this movie does lend itself to different interpretations you could run in one direction and you have you and you could find valid examples that support your interpretation and you could go down a different route and also find examples that support a different interpretation so but yeah the the sense of if you could see the future would you change it it's very confusing because this movie and we'll probably we'll get into this a little bit later with with some of the so, some of the interpretations and how they spilled out into criticism and reactions from the actual filmmakers to it. But there is the the thought that you could argue it, this movie is like the source novel where it, the, there's a theme of determinism that if you see the future, if you can see the if you see your future and your past, you see everything laid out then do you really have control over it? It brings up the a question of free will. If, if you're able to see your future, how can you change it? Because you've seen it. If you're able, if, if it's free will, then you shouldn't be able to see your future because it's always in flux. Yeah, that's a good point. It, it's, 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 a, it's a conundrum. It's a little bit of a paradox when you start to think of it, just like with time travel. But it is a major component of this film, whether it is fatalistic and says that there isn't free will or it's saying that there's kind of free will or, or not or... Uh, yeah, there are many uh, interpretations to this film, which is, and I, I apologize to our, our our listeners. This movie, if you've watched this movie, and you you must have if you listen to this, and and if you haven't watched this movie, stop listening and go watch it, and then come listen because there's just a lot of fucking shit to talk about this movie, and it, we'll, we won't get to it all. We just we won't get to it all, but but that's because this movie is so well done and so dense and so great. I want to say that uh, to, to change gears for a second, I wanted to talk about, since I finally, finally got myself to read this, the original source novel, the story of your life. I wrote down a couple of notes of things that were differences or what I thought were important differences between the actual short story by Ted Chiang, the story of your life and the, the film. First of all, the, the the story is only like fifty, maybe fifty five pages, but it's very it's it's I, I could see why it would inspire the screenwriter like it did because it is very powerful and is and much like the screenplay, it is very well executed. It, it, the economy, uh, what it's dealing with and what it what, it, what it's imparting, what it's dealing with, and the questions as we were talking about of free will and whether or not the being able to foresee the future, would you actually be able to influence it or would, would you not but knowing it would change who you are as a person? But anyway, so there's a lot of original in the, of the original source material that is actually in the screenplay. There's a whole lot. And there are a few differences that are interesting or, you know, significant. First of all, the, the sentence that Ian says to Lee's, do you want to make a baby is at the end of the film. But it's placed at, in the first paragraph of the actual short story, huh. um, which is interesting because it, it goes to the whole theme of there is no beginning, there is no middle, the, the, the beginnings and endings don't mean anything. So it's the beginning in the source novel and it's the end in the film, the very same point. And here's a very significant thing. And it really this is I was shocked by this. 
Whereas in, in the original novella, Hannah, the daughter, she in the in the source novel, she's 25 when she dies. In the film, she's in what? Like, how old do you think she's in the film? I think she's like 12. Yeah, so she's like early teens, right? Um, so she dies at 25, and the cause of death in the in the source novel is that it was from a climbing accident. Whereas in here, the different, the cause of death isn't, you know, this rare uncurable illness in the film. And that adds a whole other layer to the interpretation and meaning and import of the film separate of the novella. Not so important, but interesting. Ian Donnelly is the name of the film, but Gary Donnelly is what he is in the book. And he comes off as kind of square and he's full academic with beard and corduroys in comparison to the character Louise, who's a little more his girl Friday in the book and with, with the jokes and the wisecracks than she's a film. She is she does, you know, give it in the film, but she's much more quiet and drier and reserved in the film, I think, than she is in the actual short story. And the heptapods names in the book are Flapper and Raspberry. And they on top of seven legs, they have seven eyes. And they eat, I believe, from the bottom of their body and speak from the top. So I, I think the I think the names Abbott and Casella are much better in the film. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> and to the point of Jeremy Renner and him not having as much of a role in the film as the book, they actually speak a lot about mathematics in the book and physics, and it's a little bit more equal to the you know language and, and linguistics. But obviously, as we said before, the, the, for the purpose of the film, that those scenes, a lot of those scenes made it to the cutting room floor. The book, there's never an actual, actual physical first contact scenario with the heptapods. They send 112 looking glasses, these giant clear screens to Earth just so they can have fucking Zoom meetings with everybody. <laughs> so they never actually... <laughs> well, that right there doesn't sound too good. <laughs> There's no plot about an impending geopolitical catastrophe or threat of war or anything like that. Very focused, very focused. It's just Louise, Hannah, and the situation, but it's very localized and has, they've added to it. makes sense for the script and to make it more dramatic that they did, but that's not in the source novel. And last thing, they never learn why or explain why the heptapods visit us in the source novel. They or what they want it. Never, never discuss it. They just, it just ends with, they just fucking, they just, they just bounce. They abruptly leave towards the end of the story after Louise has fully understood heptapod, heptapod B, the written language, and it wraps up more about her and her daughter, and and that's it. There's n- nothing like in the film. The heptapods are doing this because of three thousand. They're giving, they're offering this gift of their language, which gets misconstrued as a offer weapon, but. I'm getting ahead of myself, but there is a purpose that's given, which is much more gratifying for a film is that they do this because they can see their own timeline, the heptapods, and they know that 3000 years from now, they will need help from the humans. So they go ahead and in accordance with their own future that is apparently set, come to earth with the 12 vessels to, to impart this knowledge so that, um, that humans can evolve in a way where they actually do help the heptapods 3,000 years later. Interesting, huh? Yeah, like I said, I bought the book. I haven't... I, I literally got it today. Uh, so I've wa- I want to read it. And this is this is really interesting. It's... 
I could see where the the screenplay is actually pretty big improvement. Certainly expands. I, I mean, I think it's very good. I got it. You will enjoy the book, I think, as much as you enjoyed the film on a different level. It's it's very interesting to. It's always interesting to me to look at where the germ or the the inception of an idea is and look at the difference. I I would definitely. Definitely still check it out, even though I, I'm sorry, I, I probably spoiled stuff for you. But no, um, that's okay. <laughs> it's still, it's still worth, much like the film and much like the message of the film. It's still worth, even though you know the end, it's still worth the journey. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I'll, I'll look forward to reading it. Although um, Aspen took it from me, so I don't know when I'll get get a chance to Uh-oh, get it. Oh, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there's a habit in this house of borrowing books and not giving them back. <laughs> well, good luck. All right, well, then I don't feel so bad with telling you. Yeah, because it could be years before I actually get to read yeah, this. You, you, maybe long enough where you'll forget everything I just said. <laughs> so um, one thing I wanted to mention just really briefly, not, not that I really care that much. I'm sure you looked up the Rotten Tomatoes approval rating of this movie yes 94 percent based on 428 reviews not bad the critics this is this movie is a critic critics darling it and with good reason i find it interesting that the audiences still liked it but the critics liked it way more than the audiences i'm trying to look at my own well while you bring that up i'm gonna i'm gonna mention one dissenter rex reed of the new york (laughs) observer Gave it one out of four stars, but he kind of sucks. So who cares? <laughs> this is why you and I are friends. I came across the same thing, and it is my notes <laughs> because it fucking cracked me up. There's other stuff I want to talk about, like the critic responses. But uh, towards the end of what I want to talk about, I wanted to say that <laughs> there are two things. I have two funny. Uh, reviews for you one is to expand on rex reed who comes off as completely insane (laughs) in in uh, in his heavily negative review rex reed of the new york observer gave the film one out of four call it villanov's latest exercise and pretentious poopery And he called Enemy and Sicario, he said, Enemy and Sicario were unspeakable disasters and a rival to director's latest exercise of pretentious poopery gives me every reason to believe I have parted company with Denis Villeneuve for good. What the fuck is he talking about? (laughs) It's time, it's time, Rex, 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 if you're listening, it's time to retire. You really have no, your finger is definitely not on the pulse anymore. (laughs) Well, you gotta, you gotta, you know, it's amazing. He makes it really easy to hate him. Um, <laughs> one of the reviews, I, I was reading some of his other reviews, and they're they're psychotic. I mean, they're just completely insane. He gave, I wish I remembered her name, he gave some woman good reviews for her acting skills, but said the fact that she wouldn't take a stage name and she was using her ethnic name was <laughs> was a downer for him. Oh, he's insane. I mean, <laughs> that's wow. <laughs> yeah, just, just really special. Wow. That that that, that like like seriously, seriously, Rex, Rex, if you're listening, and I'm sure you are, I'm sure you are. 
you like the fact that you said that or wrote that and put that out it, your mindset is 45 years like in the past you're insane that's really great i i can't top that but i want to say one other review that really made me chuckle there's some other reviews I want to talk to that that bring up something else but most of the reviews as we saw are very positive rave reviews there there's a couple that i looked at i looked at where they're like yeah it's not that good essentially and somewhere it's like how did you get this job but this other than rex reed what i found really funny is that i read a review in the christian science monitor and not only did the reviewer admit he didn't understand the film, he missed all of the possible religious themes and referencing and the ruminations on love, family, life, and death. Didn't have any kind of interpretations that some other people did. But he, what made me really chuckle is he admits that he just wanted to see shit blow up. His exact <laughs> line was... That's the Christian science monitor. I half wish the aliens would blow something really big up. Just to break the monotony, but it turns out they're friendly. <laughs> oh my god! Christian Science Monitor. That's so good. That's good stuff. Oh that's, that that made me chuckle. Okay, to continue the nonlinear thinking of the film and apparently most of his podcast, I would say that the reviews that we just talked about were the dessert. So now let's go back to the main course discuss more serious thought-provoking reviews but before i bring those particularly one in that i'm thinking of looking at my notes from my last viewing of this film i have written down because i just just hit me like a bolt of lightning i wrote in large caps can this movie be seen as a fucking pro-life film and what prompted that thought was when louise is talking to her daughter about why her father doesn't look at her the same way anymore like you said louise replies it's my fault i told him something he wasn't ready to hear i know something that's going to happen and when i told him he got really mad and said i made the wrong choice interesting i did not get that at all from the movie but that's that's really an interesting take yeah i have seen this movie many times and it never occurred to me before but on the last time I viewed it for this podcast, like I said, it struck me. So I looked around and I wonder if anyone brought this up. And I found I found a review that brings that up specifically by our old pal, Kyle Smith of the New York Post, who we disagreed very much with his assessments of Thelma Louise. But in his review in the New York Post, November 19th, 2016, Amy Adams and Arrival is a pro-life heroine. For the ages. In that review, he states, suddenly Louise knows that she will have a child in the future, and when she does, things will go awry. But instead of changing her fate and abstaining from motherhood, she goes ahead anyway. At the same time, the viewer realizes that the movie's earlier scenes of Louise with her daughter are actually set in the future. And this is a tragic path that she has chosen to take. In so doing, she becomes a pro-life figure for the ages. A stand-in for all those brave mothers who give birth to children they know through prenatal testing are destined to be born with untreatable diseases. So I dug further, and I had this thought pop into my head. So when I discussed discussed previously, there are different – you could have different interpretations about this film. And I will discuss the, the director has a different interpretation of what he intended. 
and so does the screenwriter, and so does Ted Chiang. And you could argue that this movie is open to different interpretations. And if you wanted, if you did interpret it as a pro-life film, you could point to the very scene that I discussed as evidence, as well as other things. If you viewed the film in a different light, that you also have ample evidence to support that theory. So this film is very interesting. You can get either from, you know, it is open to many different interpretations. Speaking of different interpretation, I came across an article on TheVerge.com. This is by Brian Bishop, and it was on December 21st, 2016, and titled Arrival Director Denis Villeneuve on the Politics of the Year's Best Sci-Fi Film. In this article, it touches upon, right when the movie came out, about this. Writer Brian Bishop asks Denis Villeneuve directly, he says, This is a movie of ideas, including the concept that Amy Adams' character knows her daughter Hannah will eventually die and decides to have Hannah anyway. That's caused some people to read this as a specifically pro-life movie. Was that intended? If not, how do you react to audiences reading into that? And Villeneuve responded, For me, the movie was about a woman having a new relationship with death and changing her perspective on her own life and finding a new humility going through that process. That was the heart of the movie. I was honestly afraid that because of the nature of the story, it could be seen as a pro-life movie which is not for me. And he continues, the idea that the movie would be seen as pro-life would be sad for me because I respect life, but I believe a woman must have her freedom. That's what I would say. Wow. So there you go. Right from uh, the director himself. On the flip side. Yeah, that's, that's the director. The screenwriter had this to say about, about it in an article by Matt Grober and deadline.com on November 30th, 2016. So he said in that article, I chose the path for her. I chose the ending because I felt like giving Louise a choice, giving her agency and free will, even in what seemed like a deterministic future, an insurmountable task. Giving her that option made it more profound as a parent or as a mother to make that choice to have Hannah that then required me to change, spoilers, how Hannah dies. So there's a lot going on. The director, (laughs) the screenwriter... (laughs) Once again, proves a point. You can argue on both sides of the fence if you wish, because the creator seems like the creative team themselves may have been on, on separate sides of the fence, given that. That is really interesting. Yeah, it's just so bizarre how it just it hit me like a bolt of lightning. Uh, and and I dug up this stuff. And to do my due diligence, I looked to see what the Ted Chiang what his take on all of this was, what his intention was with the original source material. And he wrote that the inspiration for story of your life came from his fascination with the very, the, in the variational principle in physics. But then he went on to say in a 2010 interview that the book addresses the subject of free will, the full philosophical debates about whether or not we have free will are all, are all abstract, but knowing the future makes the question very real. Jiang added, if you know what's going to happen, can you keep it from happening? Even when a story says that you can't, the emotional impact arises from the feeling that you should be able to. Huh. Wow, it's almost like a third take. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so uh, it's it's all over the place. Very interesting. I don't know. Like I said, I did not take that I, the, I did not come away with that when I watched the movie the few times I've seen it, but I could see how someone could. Yeah, I, that the when I watched this, it, it, it uh, I want to specify that I did not I did not. That's not my personal interpretation of the film. 
But when I heard when I heard that dialogue, I'm like, oh, but someone could. Um, right. I'm more I'm I am more in line with uh, Ted Chiang and Denis Villeneuve my, myself. But I again, if someone were to think or argue that it's a pro-life film, I do think that there that there you could have evidence to support that. This movie is going to have a lot of film students <laughs> <laughs> writing about that very subject for many, many years. So for all those film professors, get ready. You're getting those papers for shit short. Last thing I want to talk about was I had brought up the themes of determinism versus free will. And we discussed what some of the interpretations and critiques about the film have brought up. But I want to also discuss a few other themes and motifs that I noticed or I thought were interesting in this film. Cool. So there's the theme, obviously, of time. And there's a lot of things in the film, a lot of referencing to time. One of my favorites is that towards the end of the, the film, we hear the name of Louise's daughter, Hannah, and Louise explains to her that her name is a palindrome, a word that remains the same when it's written backwards and forwards. Therefore, it has no beginning and no end. So the, her daughter's name is intrinsic and tied to one of the main themes of the entire film. There's also a lot about the importance of language, especially as a tool or a weapon, and interpretations are also a theme. Louise, at the beginning of the film, she has a throwaway line at the very beginning where she's talking to her class on the history of Portuguese to Middle Ages, where she says, where language was seen as an expression of art. I thought that was especially fitting and great for particularly this film. Uh, Donnelly recites Dr. Banks' preface to a book at the start of the adventure that declares that language is the foundation of civilization. It is a glue that holds people together. It is the first weapon drawn in a conflict. So we get the foreshadowing of give weapon, use weapon that comes out towards the end of the film. The theme of interpretation is best illustrated when she tells Colonel Weber to ask her competitor for the job, Danvers at Berkeley, what the Sanskrit word for war is in its translation. And when Weber shows up in the middle of the night with the whole Close Encounters homage, he opens the door and he's, she, he simply says, Gavish. He says it's an argument. What do you say it is? She replies, a desire for more cows. Her, her interpretation went her the job and also cements this theme of language and interpretation, along with the, the kangaroo story, which is fucking hilarious. Perhaps one of my favorite and most chilling examples of how language can be used is how the same English sentence can be used in this film to resonate differently and evoke quite different emotional responses. In the masterful opening montage, there's a shot of baby Hannah crying in the nurse's arms and Louise in bed laughing, saying, oh, okay, come back to me. And then instantly juxtaposed with Louise over her teenage daughter's body in a hospital bed, whispering and crying, you come back to me. In a sense, Hannah always does because Louise experiences and can always access the different phases of their lives. I noticed a theme of dualism. This movie is a double box puzzle. It's a mystery within a mystery narrative structure, and it's emblematic of the film's motif of dualities and doubles. There are two heptapods, two scientists, two stories, one about the impact of the arrival for all of humankind, and one about the specific individual, Louise Brooks. And the film is a rare compound of what purists label hard science fiction, which is a category of the genre characterized by concern for scientific accuracy and logic, 
The film is saturated with scientific facts and technical jargon and also soft science fiction, which is typically exploring the social sciences and is most often concerned with characterizations and speculative societies. And Louise is often in dual states of mind, existing the two disparate points of her own timeline. Another thing I wanted to bring up, and I noticed before, is that there is a very distinct signature camera movement in this film, and it becomes an actual theme, a motif. There's distinct signature camera movement that is repeated several times throughout. Shots will begin from a position that is looking or pointing up and heaven-bound, you know, ceiling, sky, etc., and then it slowly pans down and dollars into a scene that then starts to unfold. Yeah, that I noticed a lot. I mean, it's the opening shot. It's also interesting because in many ways, like looking up like that is something what a child would do. Yeah. And, yeah. It, and it gives you like, it gives you sort of this sense that the, the concept of Hannah is in the room, even if it's not explicit. Definitely. And when you say the child, like that also feels, that's one of the things that made me connect this with, the Spielberg kind of viewpoint, the close encounters, whatever, the childlike exuberance. So yeah, definitely. Yeah, the other thing with that repeated mo- visual motif with the camera movement is looking towards the sky or the heavens is very much an old science fiction theme and it lends quasi-religious overtones to it. But the last time I watched this film, I was totally thunderstruck by Donnelly's line to Louise when he says, you know, I've had my head tilted up to the stars for as long as I can remember. You know what surprised me the most? It wasn't meeting them. It was meeting you. So this time I was like, I've once again, this movie lends itself to repeated viewing because I had seen this many times and I never picked up on that line and how you could, for film paper purposes, uh, you could <laughs> tie it to what we just discussed. Yeah, I didn't pick up on that until I think the third viewing. And then it, then it totally struck me. I'm like, yeah, this is totally ties into the visuals. Yeah, yeah. And it, the camera is always moving in this film. Well, I mean, it's always moving forward. It's always advancing into a space. And that not only does it build tension, but it also subliminally reinforces this notion and foreshadows the sense that man, and specifically Louise's, advancement moving in moving ahead so it's very cool yeah absolutely so do you do you want to talk about some of the religious symbolism or yes yes sci-fi films many sci-fi films have a surprising amount of religious themes and motifs and many that are religious allegories and i think that this one is no exception you know like war of the world is ultimately a religious film and you know even terminator plays in its sandbox a little because john connor the child of a man sent to the past to protect his mother who becomes the savior of humanity. His initials are JC. So it's, it's, it's always, it's a lot of science fiction films, but this movie also contains a lot of allegories about death, grief, religion, most evident by its biblical numerology fascination. You know, you have 12 ships that appear across the, the planet and the heptapods have seven legs, 12 and seven, which as I said, obvious, biblical referencing and it's ultimately a film about the advancement and amelioration of the entire human race as well uh, and through the personal enlightenment of just one person all these visual metaphors and signifiers address matters of the human condition yeah you know what i would love to and i wish i had looked this up i i didn't see anything on this but 
it'd be really interesting to get a Buddhist perspective on this movie. That's true. Ooh. All right. So if there are any Buddhists listening and they have particular uh, thought about the movie, let us know. Yes, please do. Another theme, uh, there's the use of white light and the theme of death and rebirth. Uh, Generally, white light is used in film for instances of contact with the divine and experiences of transcendence. And that that's in this film. I mean, Bradford Young's stunning cinematography, he consistently alternates between images of nature and brightness against murky environments and dreamlike shadows. Louise, and therefore the audience, is always going from a darkness towards a welcoming source of light. The lighting in the film continually mirrors Louise's journey of personal enlightenment. Yeah, that's true. And then if if you think about it, towards the very end of the movie, when she goes into the heptapods chamber without the screen there, it's like she's she's completely covered in in white light. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Totally. Yes. You know, she's immersed herself in it. She's no longer has that barrier of protection. Yes, and 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 that's when she really realizes that she has this gift as well so it's really layered in it yeah totally totally so yeah i mean the whole thing about visions and so this movie can be again interpretation can be seen as an allegory of faith because the more she's with the heptapods and, and, and when she's finally actually in the same physical space surrounded by the white light she she changes and is affected and as as she learns to communicate with the aliens better and better she hears their call more clearly and can understand. Louise's ability to do that aligns with what many commonly associate with the attainment of belief, with the clarity of vision, purpose, and thought. And also, the whole her story is also a whole meditation on healing through suffering. Yeah, that's a good point. Because she does go through quite a bit of suffering and attains enlightenment from that, if you think about it. Oh, yeah, totally. Totally. So, a hefty, hefty, a dense film. Uh, the most cerebral, I think, uh, to state once again, I think we've tackled. Definitely. So, yeah, as you said, this is definitely our most cerebral film. You want to talk about what your final thoughts are on it? Yeah, you know, definitely. I, I know we could probably talk about much more about it, but we don't want to make this a five-hour podcast. So, yeah, let's 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 wrap it up. I um I would say that this film, you know, obviously, obviously, I love it. I think it's pretty obvious that you love it. This film encapsulates most of the significant tropes of the sci-fi genre and synthesize them into a masterfully crafted toward the force of immense power, motion, and credibility. And that will resonate with any audience in any year. Arrival is not just one of the best science fiction films I've seen in the last five years. It's simply one of the best films I've seen in that time. It is a work of tremendous import and the sheer scope of its ideas and the technical execution is so sublime, I was haunted by it, in a good way, for days after I first watched it. And still, it's the gift that keeps on giving. This is a film that can be interpreted in many ways, but no matter what your interpretations of this film may be, the experience of watching it is, as described by Ian in the film, which is a term he calls a win-win scenario, it is the experience of watching this film is a non-zero sum game. Wow. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I love this movie. You could tell that I love this movie because I talk about it a lot with people. 
and I've tried to get other people to watch it who haven't. It's it's just really intense and really deep. So I'm so with good. you 100%. Well, you hear the theme music, so that means that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. We would love to hear back from you. Please visit the Lounge.com and let us know what you think about this episode or the show in general. We invite you to join in and continue the conversation about any of the films we've discussed. Also, please don't forget to follow us on Instagram, where we are the Cinephiliac Lounge. And on Twitter, you can find us at the Cinephiliac One. If you happen to listen to us on Apple or Google and like what you hear, please give us a rating. That would be very much appreciated. We need a sponsor to get free booze someday. <laughs> Shameless, but I agree. Please look out for the announcement on Instagram soon to be able to vote for your favorite arrival quote. As always, the winning quote will be added to our random quote section of the site. Next up, we discuss John Carpenter's sci-fi action classic, Escape from New York, on its 40th anniversary. This one is another very special film for us, and hell, it should be for all New Yorkers, especially now, so you won't want to miss it. 